Well, our Father, we thank you that the prayer is just not something we do because it's a religious exercise. We do it because uh, you are our Father, and Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. And then he gave us instructions in the Lord's Prayer. We don't pray for for you to know what's going on in our lives. You already know. In fact, that's what Jesus said. He said, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. But we pray because we need to pray. And we we are told in Philippians to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a lot to be worried about right now. There's a lot. There's a lot to be anxious about. We, we look around at what's going on in the world and we are amazed at the uh, upheaval, at the um, barbarity, at the anarchy, the chaos. It just seems like things are out of control. And we can very easily look at all of that, wonder where it's going to go next, and we can get anxious. We... Uh, get closer to home and we look at what's going on in our nation and we can get very worried and we can get very anxious. Then we look in our personal lives and uh, guys are here tonight who are carrying great weights upon their shoulders. We wouldn't know it to look at them, but uh, the fact of the matter is they are weighted down. Tremendous pressure, tremendous anxiety. Something is looming before them that uh, has the potential to just bring them down. And it can come in so many different ways, but nevertheless, there's pressure, there's weight. It it threatens to crush us in our very existence. And in the midst of that, you say, be anxious for nothing. We're also told to uh, cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. So I would pray for us tonight that as we come here to study your word and to hear from you and to look at your Bible and to see what you have to say to us, that we would consciously take the thing that is burdening us and weighing us down and that we would hand it to you and trust you to take care of this situation. We we are men and we like to be in control, but you often remind us that uh, we are not in control. But you are. And there are things in our lives we wish we could fix, and we just simply do not have the power. We don't have the ability. We don't have the capability. We don't have the resources to fix these things, but you do. And we would ask you, Lord, to be mindful. The psalmist said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. We never quit coming to you. We never quit opening our hearts to you. We're not here to be religious. We're not here to do some religious ritual or deal. We we know you. You have called us. We have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. And so because you're our father, we can unload and just tell you what's on our hearts, what we're worried about, what we're concerned about, just as our kids do. 
with us. They just unload on us, and they're supposed to unload on us. But this is serious stuff, what we're looking at right now in the world and in this nation and in our lives. And we have nowhere to go except to you. So we come to you and we bow, and we thank you that you have the power, you have the ability, you have the means, that you're in absolute charge, you're in absolute control. You are stunned by none of this. It's part of your plan. And all of these things that concern us and worry about, that we worry about, you are aware of them. You have promised to meet all of our needs. You promised to take the bad which occurs and turn it to our good and to your glory. Now, those are the facts. Those are the truths. May they minister to our hearts as we sit down now and open up the scripture. Speak to our hearts. Steady us. Calm us down. Give us hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's getting harder and harder to get back up, isn't it, guys? <laughs> Have you noticed that? Every week it gets more difficult. Oh, well. Get miles on the tires. Ephesians chapter 6. We are uh, in this 10-verse section at the conclusion of the book of Ephesians. Where Paul is giving some final instructions. He's been, he's been addressing these folks. First half of the book, he's been giving them uh, solid doctrine to chew on, the truth about God, the truth about what God has done, uh, the truth about Christ, what he has done in our hearts. Uh, in, in chapter 2, he gets into the condition that we were all in before we knew Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. A lot of Christians think that before they, that you come to Christ, they think you're unconscious. You're not unconscious. You're dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When you're spiritually dead, anybody who's dead, when you're dead, you can't change your condition. You do not have the ability on your own to change your condition. But because of the greatness of our Father, and because of the greatness of the Son, the Spirit of God draws us, and He breathes life into us, and we hear the gospel... And even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he makes us alive. And then he saves us from our sins, we call upon the Lord. That's 2, 8, and 9. And then he has a work for us to do, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. So that tells us that, that there is a God in the heavens. He has always existed. He was not created. It's called the aseity of God, the self-existence of God. God has always been. Maybe, you, you know, when your kids were small, they would say to you, Daddy, where did God come from? I remember saying that to my dad, asking, Dad, where did God come from? He goes, well, he's always been. Yeah, but where did he come from? And in my mind, I would try to think back as far as I could, as many years as I could, and then i get to the end, and i go, yeah, but where did he come from? Everything has been created except God. God has always been. Uh, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. 
his throne is in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. That's our God. He sent his son. He redeemed us. That's all in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then the second half of the book, 4, 5, and 6, you see is uh, the first part of the book is doctrine, it's truth, it's facts. And then the second part of the book is, uh, is application, is the practical application. See, Christianity is just not about the head, it's about the heart. So the truth that we learn in the first three chapters, that truth is then to be applied to our lives. And that's when you, talk, you get into the, the different applications, one of which uh, is the family that he talks about in Ephesians 5 and how husbands relate to wives and wives relate to husbands and fathers relate to their kids. And uh, it's, it's very practical because Christianity is to be applied in the home. And then as he's wrapping up the book, he gets to verse 10, and you think he's about ready to conclude, and then he says, finally then, brethren. And that's where we are. We're in Ephesians 6.10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, uh, the schemes of the devil or the methods of the devil or the strategies of the devil. And if you've been with us over the last uh, few weeks when we've been in this study, what, what he's telling us about is the fact that there is an, an unseen battle. There is a spiritual warfare going on. And that when we come to Christ and when the, the Lord does a work in our heart and we, we trust in Christ alone, not in our works, not in our background, but we trust in Christ alone for our salvation. And we believe that Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and that he was the payment and the penalty for our sins. What he did when he shed his blood on the cross. I'll flip over real quick to uh, Colossians. Let me show you this. Colossians 2, 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Well, that's also in Ephesians 2. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Uh, in, in, in the Roman times, when you committed a crime um, and you were charged, they would write out a certificate uh, with your name on it, with the charges, and then when you went before the court, if you were judged to be guilty and then you were sentenced, it would, it, there would be a certificate of decree with charges against you, and then when you were put into your uh, cell they would take that uh, certificate of debt and it would say, uh, Steve Farrar owes Caesar X amount of years for this crime. And it would be hammered on the door, interestingly enough. And then after you had chosen and served your time, then what they would do is that before they released you, they would take that certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you, your crimes against Caesar, and they would then uh, imprint it with the word telestai. And the word telestai means paid in full. And you could never be held again on those charges because you had paid the debt against Caesar. Um, when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, it's the word telestai. Where you see it's paid in full. Paid in full, it is finished, it's the same thing. When you pay a bill and they give you a receipt, and it says paid in full, it's to tell us that. It's finished. The payment's done. It's complete. 
That's what Christ did. And when we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin, what that does is it puts us in his kingdom. And now, because there is an enemy, and if you've been with us in this study, we've been looking at this whole thing of spiritual warfare. Satan was the highest of all of the angels. He rebelled against God in eternity past, took a third of the angels with him, and his, his realm is the earth. He is the God of this earth. And as one commentator has said, Satan is very, very intelligent, but he's not wise. And his, his whole method is to do attempt to destroy the purpose and plan of God. So when we come to Christ, we're part of the purpose and plan of God. So when we come to Christ, because he hates Christ and because we love Christ, he will come after us. Therefore, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, against the strategies of the devil, against the methods of the devil, because he's going to attempt to bring you down because you love Christ. I've mentioned um, that these 10 verses are, are extremely significant. I've mentioned several times that William Gurnall wrote a book back in the 1600s called The Christian in Complete Armor. He was a pastor in England. He uh, pastored in the same church for 35 years. Pastors back then um, lived a different life than pastors today. He pastored in the same village. Uh, there weren't a lot of diversions. There weren't a lot of... Um, demands. People, when the parish would be sick, they would be ill, but, but not the demands that are put on pastors today. Uh, one of the great demands that are put on pastors today, there are so many, they're pulled so many different ways, they're invited to so many different things, come and do this, do this, do this, it's so easy for them to get out of the Word of God. But what I love about the old Puritan pastors is they soak themselves, they steep themselves in the Word of God. That's why 350 years later we still read their stuff. It used to be said of some of them, if you cut them, they would bleed Bible. It was just in them. It was just in them. Because they saturated themselves in the Word of God. So William Grinnell wrote this book, The Christian in Complete Armor. 1,200 pages on 10 verses. And it was in double columns, so that's the equivalent of 2,400 pages on 10 verses. And I mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones when he preached on this, Westminster Chapel in London. He preached 56 sermons on 10 verses. Why? Because it's neglected, but it's such a critical part of the Christian life. When, when I read these words, put on the full armor of God, that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, you know what that tells me? The enemy will attack. The enemy and his minions, the enemies and his bureaucracy, and there is a bureaucracy of demonic hordes. Satan can only be in one place at one time. But they will attack. Uh, William Gurnall, in, in his book, he points out six ways that you can count on when the enemy will attack. I want to go over those tonight with you. So if you're, if you're taking notes, the heading would just simply be, when the enemy attacks. And, I, and, 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 and Gurnall, I think he is right on target with this. And see, a lot of times, you know, the Scripture says we're not to be ignorant of his schemes. Well, a lot of times we are ignorant of, we are ignorant of his schemes. But if I can understand there are going to be certain times in my life when he will attack me, then I'm not ignorant of his schemes, and I can be prepared, and I can expect an attack. Even though he's subtle, even though he will try to blindside me, 
the Scriptures make me aware of what's going on so that I can stand firm. So let's run them down. When will the enemy attack? Number one, the enemy will attack when the Christian is newly converted. Let me say that again. He, when will he attack? Well, first, he will attack when the Christian is newly converted. Um, oftentimes, when someone comes to know Christ, they will immediately undergo persecution. They will undergo persecution from their, from their friends. Because the things they used to do, the interests, the pursuits, their hearts have changed, and they're, they're a new creature in Christ, and the things that appealed to them in the past don't appeal to them anymore. And as a result, a lot of times when someone comes to Christ, their friends turn on them. Here's another thing that will happen. If you're the first in your family to come to Christ, and you come to the Lord, and He does a remarkable work in your life, oftentimes family members will turn on you. Over the years out on our property, we've had kids, young people, living at our place. And they're, they're friends of my kids. And it's been interesting to look over the last 13, 14 years and see who the Lord has brought out there to us because they'll come and stay for a year or two years or three years, whatever's going on. But in, in the vast majority of cases, they've been new believers. And in the vast majority of cases, they have been the first in their families to come to know Christ, and as a result, they've been cut off, they have been ostracized, they have been persecuted, they have been uh, vilified, they have been um, just given one heck of a time by their family because now they're pursuing Christ and following Christ. So what do they need? They need a support system. They need to be loved. They need to be cared for. They need to be encouraged. Uh, maybe that's been your experience. If you're new in the faith, just understand that the enemy will attempt to come after you. He's going to harass you because he doesn't want you on this course of action. Uh, Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life and few are those who find it. Most people are on the wrong path going the wrong direction. Uh, the wrong road that most people are on is like... Uh, it's like, I, it's like Central Expressway after they, uh, after they expanded it. Wasn't that great the first time you got on Central Expressway? What was that? Ten years ago now? Eleven years ago? When they finally got that thing done? They've been working on it since the Civil War. They finally got the sucker done. And when you got on it, remember how constricted that used to be? What, two lanes each way and you could hardly breathe and you couldn't move your car six inches because you'd ram the guy next to you? It was like a NASCAR race. And then they just expanded it. I mean, and the first, I remember the first time I got it, I mean, it was like, oh, this is unbelievable. You just had all this room. So, you know, you don't have to pay attention. You can swerve back and forth. You had all kinds of room. It was excellent. You can talk on the phone. You can text. You can send a fax. It's, it's very dangerous. And you don't do that. But, but I'll tell you what, it's sure fun to drive that thing at, uh, at noon when there's not a lot of traffic because you've got all kinds of room. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. That's the road most people are on. But Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. This is why you get persecuted when you first come to know Christ, by friends and by family. So you can count on being attacked when the Christian is newly converted. And there's another way that he will attack us. 
when, when we are new believers, we are in a process of understanding the gospel and that we are indeed truly forgiven. And so what the enemy does is he's, he's called the accuser of the brethren, and he is constantly accusing us. There is a place in the Christian life for self-examination. We're to guard our hearts. We're to check out our hearts. We're to watch our hearts. Uh, guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life, Proverbs says. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, flip over to 1 Corinthians 11 with me real quick. There's a legitimate place in the Christian life for self-examination. In 1 Corinthians 11, and you know the church at Corinth was a church that was really screwed up. I hope you understand that. They were in bad shape. They had all of these spiritual diseases, and Paul was writing to correct them and get them back on course. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and they were, they were taking the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate way, and they would have a feast, and the wine had alcohol in it, and there would be food, and some of them were getting drunk at the Lord's table. Look at verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. They, they were ignoring the fact that it's a time to remember what Christ has done. It's a very sacred time. It's a very holy time. It's a time where we remember. Communion is a time where we remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. And we think about it when we drink. We're reminded of his blood. We think about his body, which was broken. It's a mental exercise to remind ourselves of what Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sins. So you don't do it in a haphazard way. Look at uh, verse 28. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We don't do it in a flippant way. We look at our hearts. We examine ourselves. If there's known sin. If there's a, a sin that we're convicted of, we, we confess it to the Lord. And we drink the cup and we eat the bread and we receive. We, we're reminded of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. So is there a place for... Self-examination? Yes. But we have to be careful, not only as new believers, but as, as it, maybe you've been a believer for 10 years or 20 years. One of the things we have to be careful of is crossing the line from self-examination into introspection. It's an attack of the enemy. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you've been in the study for a while, you, you know I have great admiration for him. He died in 1981, but he was pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, and one of the giants of the 20th century church. Uh, he was a medical doctor before he went into ministry, and he was uh, chosen to be, in essence, uh, at the age of 27, before he went into the pastorate, he was handpicked by the physician of the queen to be his protege. So, hands down, he was to be the next physician to the queen. And one of the things about Lloyd-Jones as a medical doctor was his ability to diagnose. Uh, in medicine, that's the key, is, is a physician's ability to accurately diagnose because symptoms, you don't want to treat the symptoms, you want to treat the root. Uh, Lloyd-Jones brought that same ability to the scriptures. Let me read something to you. He's talking about the importance of self-examination, how the enemy can attack us and turn self-examination into introspection, which is not healthy. You, am I making any sense at all? Let me explain. In fact, I'm not going to explain it. I'm going to let Lloyd-Jones explain it. 
In the case of those who are given the self-examination, the devil, knowing that they are sensitive and spiritually minded and intelligent people, and are very much concerned to obey the scriptural injunction that they are to grow and make progress in the Christian life, the devil, knowing all of this, comes along and presses them on this very matter of self-examination. He drives them to it, he holds them to it, and he keeps them at it to such an extent that he succeeds in bringing them into a condition of utter depression. They begin to feel hopeless, they are in a complete muddle, and know not what to do. That is, I suppose, one of the commonest causes of this uh, condition of discouragement. It is when you cross the line from self-examination to introspection. The term introspection is a good description. It means that your cameras and your telescopes, all your means and mechanisms of examination, are turned inwards upon the self. Don't lose that. Your camera, your, your, your microscope, it's all turned on you and your heart and your internal condition. This leads to the accompanying condition of morbidity, which means that the soul is not able to function properly. It is a kind of paralysis, an organic disease of the soul and spirit. It is the result of overdoing something which is good and right in and of itself, which is to examine your heart. But see, when you get, but, but you cross the line from legitimate examination, for, for instance, did, did I speak harshly to my wife before we came to church tonight? Well, you know, yes, I did. Well, what's the appropriate thing? Lord, forgive me. I confess that to you. And then when you get in the car, you say, sweetheart, forgive me. I'm sorry I was so short with you. That's the appropriate response. But the devil wants to take you beyond that. He wants the cameras turned. See, when we get an unhealthy introspection, you're detailing every sin. You're aware of sins of commission and omission. And oh my gosh, I fall short. And you're extremely hard on yourself. What's the solution to that? The solution, if, if you're prone to that, and it's just not new believers, but maybe you've been a believer for 10 years or 20 years, and your tendency is to be very, very hard, and you see your shortfalls and your sin and all that. The, the solution is not to train your cameras on yourself, but to train the cameras on Christ. What is it that Christ has done? 1 John 1.9. Flip over to 1 John 1.9. It's worth looking at. It's one of those verses you want to tattoo on your forehead, metaphorically speaking. Some young guys will hear that and go, actually, do it. So we, we have to say metaphorically. If we confess our sins, what sins? The sins you know about. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what the enemy tries to do? He tries to get us so aware of our shortcomings and our failings. And we're so acutely aware that we fall short. We're so acutely aware that we are not measuring up. Perhaps you expected at this point in your life you'd be further along in the Christian life than you are, and so you begin to self-condemn. And actually, it's not self-condemning, it's a satanic condemning. But you see, and you say, oh, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. You've got to get the cameras off of you and get them on Christ. If we confess our sin, this is, one of the, this is absolutely liberating. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. 
Watch this. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, you know the problem with being so hard on yourself and looking at your sin, oh, I did this and this and this? There are 10 million things you did that you haven't even acknowledged. And so have I, right? We're screwed up. Are we not? The problem with self-examination, you're not going to examine yourself. You don't have the time. You don't have the bandwidth. You don't have the capacity in your hard drive to conceive of everything you've done to fall short of the glory of God. You're just scratching the surface. But you don't have to delve into all that stuff. You just confess the sin you know about. And is this not a great gospel? Is this not a great Savior? If we confess our sins, the sin we know about, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the greatest thing in the world, dadgummit. Don't you think? Some of you guys need a steroid shot or something, or a B12 right in the rear end. You need something. That's phenomenal. That sets you free. You see? Get the cameras off of you and get them on Christ. It's called grace. Does the enemy want you to enjoy grace? Are you kidding me? No, no. All right, let's go to number two. We're asking the question. When will he attack? Number two, when the Christian is afflicted. When the Christian is intensely suffering, he will attack. So we obviously think of Job. You know the story of Job? He was a righteous man. He feared God. Um, kind of man we want to be. Satan goes, says, basically, he loves you, Lord, because... You've done everything for him. You've, you've, you've given him a prosperous life. But if you allow me to do this to him, he'll turn his heart from you. So Job was going to be a test case for the ages. He, he had no idea. And so he's afflicted. Now, by the way, let me point this out. Satan can only afflict him as far as God allows. God has boundaries, and Satan cannot surpass them. So once again, we, we are my, re, reminded that Satan has power, but he has limited power. He cannot go beyond the fence post which God has set for him. He's the, the devil is God's devil. God's got him on a chain. He is not equal with God. You know, there's not good and evil. No, God runs this sucker. God owns him. God is using him for his purposes. All right, that's another issue, but I just want you to see that. So he has to get permission from God to afflict a believer, namely Job. And you know, all that happens to Job in Job chapter 1, uh, all these calamities afflict Job, including losing his kids. And then you go to Job chapter 2, and then another calamity comes upon him. He's got boils from head to toe. His wife comes in and says, why don't you just curse God and die? See, here's what happens when we have a season of great affliction, when we have a season of great suffering. And, and we do have those seasons in the Christian life. There is a counterfeit gospel that's out there that is being taught in American culture that, and you, you know it as well as I do, the prosperity gospel that you should always... And, and, and Chuck nailed it Sunday. If you were here, you heard him talk about it. Uh, you should always be healthy. You should always be rich. You should, every, in your life, it ought to be perfect. That's not the gospel. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Many. Not some, not few, many. That's why you have many. You belong to Christ. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. 
Suffering is a gift from God. Suffering keeps you from getting spiritually sloppy and stupid. It keeps you on your knees. It builds spiritual muscle. Suffering keeps you in the gym. It keeps you in God's gymnasium. Um, it's not pleasant. It's not fun. Sometimes God will discipline his children because we get out of, we get out of whack. That's Hebrews 12. He'll discipline us. Uh, it says in Hebrews, all, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. What an understatement that is. But to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But when you're suffering, and when things are hard, and when things are difficult, and that's, we're not perpetually suffering in the Christian life, but there are seasons of suffering. There are seasons of intense pain. There are seasons of intense difficulty. There are times when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or the valley of deepest darkness. There are times in our lives we're in the valley, and the valley is very, very deep, and the valley is very, very dark. You've lost your job. And you've been working your tail off to get hired somewhere, and it's just not happening. You're in a valley of deep darkness. That's hard. It's difficult. And, the, and, and you know what? And, and here, count on it. Here's where the enemy will attack. And how does he attack us? How can God be good and allow this to happen to me? I'm not against God. I'm for him. I'm trying to follow the Lord. That's what Job was doing. Job, I, I mean, if you were Job, see, sometimes I remember as a young I remember as a young rookie pastor, when I, I and anyway, those early years, I, I had a lot of uh, lessons to learn. And uh, so God signed me up for some classes <laughs> that they didn't offer in seminary. There are some classes you can't take at Dallas Seminary. Um, you just take them in life. And the classes are so hard and so difficult and so repulsive that nobody in their right mind would ever sign up for them. So he signed you up. And you find yourself one day just in a class where you don't want to be. But you're going to learn some lessons. And I can remember uh, a period in my life where it seemed like everything was against me. God was, anything I touched, it was like there was no favor, there was no blessing. I mean, God, I was just getting hammered. I ham and I felt like a quarterback who was taking the snap from center and going back, and my linemen were coming after me. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? I didn't understand what God was doing. I was getting nailed every time. And it was like, I, I would say, hey, God, look at my jersey. I'm on your team. I'm not against you. I'm for you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to go against you. I'm trying to do your will. Yet I'm getting hammered. I mean, look at my jersey. It says, yay, God. Yay, Jesus. I'm on your team. Why are you pounding me like this? And I remember that, I remember that day, uh, I remember that day when I went in that back bedroom and I wished that I, I wished that I could die. I'll never forget that. I just wish I just wish I could. Those are classes you don't want to be in, but sometimes he puts us in them. And see, when you're in those classes, you begin to ask yourself the question, I thought God was good. I thought he was good. And, and you see, the struggle, may I say this to you? Sometimes the greatest spiritual battle you will ever face is with God. 
and not questioning his goodness or blaming him or putting him on the witness stand and cross-examining God. I find it interesting that in the whole book of Job, as Job suffered and Job went through all that he went through, turn over with me to Job. Job struggled and he, he struggled deeply and then ultimately God responded to Job Finally, God responded to him in Job 38. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? See, you have to be very careful when you begin to get angry with God and you begin to indict God and you begin to question God's goodness because you are speaking words without knowledge. You do not know of what you speak. You, you know what you've experienced, and you know that you're in intense pain. But oftentimes, guys, when we are in intense pain, we are not thinking clearly. We cannot see or understand the purposes of God. Psalm 119.68 says, The Lord is good and does good. Even when a child dies, he's still good. Do we understand it? Do we comprehend it? No, because our hearts are crushed and broken and we are pulverized. And by the way, if that has happened to a friend, you don't need to go and have a Bible study with them. You probably just need to go sit with them and just sit with them. Uh, Joe Bailey, who was a tremendous Christian writer, If I'm not mistaken, he had five sons. I know two of them, but three of them died. It's a painful thing to lose a son. And when his third boy was killed in a hiking accident, he was rappelling down a mountain and rope gave way and he died. Third son now, third son to die. Joe told uh, of, of an instance where he was just sitting down on his front porch a couple days after this happened. And a guy drove up and, uh, from his church and saw him on the porch and said, Joe, do you mind if I sit down? And he said, no, have a seat. And the guy began to talk to him. And Joe said he began to, he began to tell me scriptures that I had memorized. And he gave me one after another after another. And after about 45 minutes, he said, well, Joe, I'm going to get up and leave. And Joe said, I was really glad he did. And later that afternoon, another car came up the driveway and a guy got out from his church. The guy came up and said, Joe, you mind if I have a seat? He said, no, I have a seat. And he said, the guy just sat down, never said a word. And about 30 minutes later, he just, uh, he got up and he just patted my knee. He said, hey man, I'm for you. Got in his car and drove away. And I was sorry to see him go. You got to be careful what you say to folks who are wounded. You see. You got to be real careful. And when you're wounded, you have to be careful what you say and what you think about God. Because there are things we don't know. And so, how does God finally answer Job? 
He says, verse 3, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and now you instruct me. Oh, this is interesting. He says, all right, Job, now you teach me. And then he begins to ask him questions. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Well, that'll give you some perspective. <laughs> Tell me if you have understanding. By the way, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its corners? Some of you guys have built a house. How about building the earth and the universe? Uh, eight. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? Uh, verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? And it just goes on from there. Look at verse 22. Have you ever entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Is that not wild? Verse 31, he starts talking about the constellations. Verse 35, he talks about rain, he talks about lightning. Verse 39, he talks about feeding the animals. Um, we have to be very, very careful when we are suffering that we do not say things of God that are not true. We have to rest in what he has said to us. But the enemy will come and say, he is not a good God and he cannot be trusted with your life. And at some point, you will go through this. I think Joseph went through this. I think Moses went through it. I, th I think Paul went through this attack. There will be a time in your life where the events of your life seem to point that God is not good and God does not care, and he does. You will be attacked when you are afflicted. Number three. When will he attack? Number three, when the Christian has achieved some notable success. The Christian life is not a life of perpetual suffering. There are times when God gives victory. There are times when God blesses. There, there are times when God pours out the floodgates of heaven. He, he enables us to accomplish something. He enables us to be productive. He enables us to experience a great victory. Um, he's a good God. And when that happens, be careful. Because when you have achieved some notable success, you can count on the fact that you will be attacked. Flip over, if you would, to 2 Chronicles 26. One of, the, one of the kings in the Old Testament was a guy by the name of Uzziah. He was an incredible king. If you read uh, chapter 26, and you see all that he did, he became king at the age of 16. He co-ruled with his father. He was an amazing builder. Um, he sought the Lord. He had all of these achievements that God had given to him. He enjoyed the favor of God. He enjoyed the prosperity of God. He built up the cities. He built up the defense system. He built up the infrastructure. Uh, he was a remarkable builder. He was a remarkable developer. He, he didn't take away. He contributed 
And, and he built the army, he built the military, um, he had the latest technological inventions. If you look at verse 15 of Second uh, Chronicles 26, in Jerusalem he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. And if you read the previous 14 verses, this guy had one success, 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 success after another. He was, in the high school yearbook, he was most likely to succeed. He was the golden boy. He was a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, he had the whole package. This guy had it all. Success, success, success. And then you look at the end of verse 15. It says, hence his fame spread afar. Why? Because of all his success and victories. Watch this. And he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Verse 16. But when he became strong, watch the attack. His heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He had so much achievement, he had so much victory, he had so much success that his heart got proud, and he actually did something that he was not supposed to do. He entered the temple to burn incense on the altar, but you see, he's a king, he's not supposed to do that, only a priest can do that. Uh, the priest stood up against him and said, you cannot do this, and he became enraged. And you know what happened? You can read it right there. God hit him with leprosy as he opposed them. And he was a leper for the rest of his days. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, guys, we cannot handle uh, unbridled prosperity and victory in our lives. We can't handle it. We don't have the capacity to handle it. Um, I, I think, I, 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 I think we have to be careful when we ask God to give us more. I think you have to be real careful about that. And when you, if you're asking God to enable you to go to the next level or to achieve this, whenever you do that, whenever you do that, also pray, not my will, but thine be done. You say, well, why would you do that? Because you don't know if you can handle the next level. You don't know if you can handle the victory, and you don't know if you can handle the prosperity that will come with it. It, it. it could ruin you. You want to work and you want to work hard, but let God promote you. Jeremiah 29, 29 in the King James says, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. You don't know what you can handle. So entrust your soul. Let those who suffer to, uh, according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You see? Give it to him. Your career, your achievement, the next level, whatever's coming. Give it to him. Say, not my will, but thy me done. Lord, you know what's best. I don't. I have, do I have a need? Have you promised to meet my needs? Yes. But don't, don't let me start in my heart desiring this in a, in a way that would be contrary to your purposes. Save me from myself. Protect me from myself. Mine number four? Good. When will he attack? When the Christian is isolated from other Christians. 
He will attack you when you are isolated from other Christians. In the book of Hebrews, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. Christians are to be together. That's why we are in our churches. We come together uh, to hear our pastors teach the word of God. We're to be together. We're to be with other believers. Jesus didn't send them out one by one. Jesus sent them out two by two. Uh, I've often said there are two things you can't do in the there are two things you can't do in the Christian life. Number one, you can't get married by yourself. At least not yet. I'm sure there's some federal judge that will change that before long, but. For right now, you can't get married by yourself. Here's the second thing you can't do by yourself. You can't live the Christian life by yourself. Whenever you see a man who's been following Christ and walking with Christ, and then you see a man have a great fall, usually you will see that that man has become isolated from other believers. He's put a wall around himself, and nobody can get close to him, and nobody can touch his life. When you're isolated from other Christians, you are particularly vulnerable. Uh, Psalm 1, if you turn there. So the whole book of Psalms begins um, with a word about the wise man who's living in wisdom. How blessed is the man, watch this, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Not only does he love the word of God, but he loves those who love the word of God. It doesn't mean that we don't have acquaintances that don't know the Lord. It doesn't mean that at all. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. But what it means is this, is that you need people around you who have a love for Christ as you have a love for Christ. Doesn't mean you don't have unbelievers in your life. But ask yourself this question. Who is it in your life that is influencing you? Uh, It says, how blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. If you're hanging out with those that are wicked and they're not pursuing Christ, bad company corrupts good morals. If, If you're a father and you have children at home, you have to, it's your job to look out for the, for the friends that your kids choose. If the enemy can't get to you, he'll try to get to you through your kids. And bad company corrupts good morals. So you, it's your job as a father to help your children choose friends that are good and avoid friends that are not good. I remember getting a call um, one night about 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning. This is Officer such and such from the Denton Police Department. I've got your son Josh here. I said, you don't have Josh, he's upstairs. He said, you, ha- you have John. Because John was not doing well back then. Those were bad years, let me just say that. Those were not good years. That was when John was a senior in high school and Josh was a freshman. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm out, the phone rings, uh, such and such, you know, Sergeant, Sergeant, I've got your son here, Josh. I said, no, you have Josh, you've got John. He goes, no, I have Josh. No, Josh wouldn't do that. You've got John. No, sir, I have Josh. I said, can you hold on a second? I went up in his room, 
and Josh wasn't there. Now, he had a friend staying the night who had been a friend for about six months, and from day one, I didn't like this kid. And neither did Mary. The kid would say all the right things, but he had a hard heart. And I was watching this, and I was watching this, and I was watching it. And I tell you this with John's permission and Josh, they don't mind me telling you this story. It's just where we were 10 years ago, and thankfully things are not, they're, they're not where they were. But that was a, it was a bad time 10 years ago. So I got back on the phone, and I said, oh, where are you? And he said, I'm here with these guys. I went around, there had been a party, and they'd snuck out and got out the back window and gotten in this kid's car. And, and the cops came up to this party, and somebody had thrown marijuana, and the cops saw him, and couldn't, nobody would fess up, and it was Josh and this kid, and then another kid. And uh, what, what had happened is that Josh had developed a hard heart because the kid he was hanging out with who was influencing had a heart had a hard heart. And, I was, and as I was interacting with the police officer, I was watching this, and I was, I was looking for, you always look for a softening in a kid's heart. But I wasn't seeing it in Josh, and so I was talking to a police officer, and he said, well, we've got this and this. And, and I said, well, you know what I think? Uh, I think you ought to just take him to jail. I remember Josh's eyes got real big. But I didn't see a softening. I was trying to make a point, and the, the, the officer was kind of surprised, and he, then he figured out what I was doing. So we talked for a few minutes, and then I, I can't tell you exactly what happened, but I saw Josh, I saw the realization, hey, and I saw the softening begin in his heart. So I said to the officer, I said, I said how would this be, officer? I, uh, and, and, and the other boys, one of the other officers was talking to him, so it was Josh and his friend. I said, how about if I take both of these guys and I go over to this boy's house and get his father up and along with his father, we'll work that out. Would that be okay with you? He said, that'd be fine. So at 3.30, we go over to the kid's house, knock on the door, get his mom and dad out of bed. His mom was great. His dad was pathetic, completely passive, upset that I woke him up. Mother was a gracious lady. I just felt terrible for her. But the guy was just completely disconnected. Had been. And uh, at one point, we were having a... And I, just real, and I said, all right, here's what we're going to do here. These guys, the friendship's over. Uh, Josh will never come over here. He'll never come over to our house. It's over. It's, these guys are bad for each other. That's it. It's over and done with. And it was. Um... I told that story recently, and somebody said, that seemed kind of harsh. What about that boy's soul? And I said, well, my first responsibility was for my own son's soul. Bad company corrupts good morals. By the way, about six, seven years later, Josh went to that boy's funeral. Because he, he hit a tree going about, I don't know, close to 100 miles an hour. He was drunk, going to a fight club. That's what he did. And Josh said his funeral was the saddest thing he'd ever been to because nobody had anything good to say about the kid except he loved to fight. He had a hard heart. I had to get my son out of that situation. I had to.
And not only that, but I pulled him out of a school and put him into a small little Christian school that was just getting going with 40 kids. We had to get a change of environment because he was isolated. Now, do we always do such radical things? No, but sometimes radical action is necessary. Is it not? So who is influencing you and who are you hanging out with? Which leads me to the next one. Uh, when will the enemy attack? Number five, when the Christian is idle. I-D-L-E. When the Christian is idle. Uh, the classic illustration of this is 2 Corinthians, no, 2 Samuel 11. You remember David and Bathsheba? Uh, it all began in 2 uh, Samuel 11. And up, up the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, David has one victory, one victory, one victory. He's unifying the nation. God's blessing him. God's blessing him. He's never defeated in battle. He's unifying the nation. The favor of God's all over him. And if you look at uh, 2 Samuel, and let's look at it. You look at 2 Samuel 11, you'll see the description of what occurred here. <clears throat> And I've got to hustle because my monitor is showing me two minutes and 50 seconds. Second Samuel 11, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Why? Well, he decided to take early retirement. So what did he do? Verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house. In Jerusalem to this day, the roofs of the house, houses are patios. And if you go over there, you'll see that. Now David was the king, so he had the highest house on the hills of Jerusalem. And he's probably up there soaking in a jacuzzi, you know, smoking on a stogie or something. I don't know what he's doing. He's got his binoculars out because he sees that chick down there who can't see him. Now, how did this all begin? He was idle. He was idle. Oh, by the way, can I tell you something else? He was isolated. He was isolated from a close, godly friend. You say, how do you know that? Who was David's closest friend? Jonathan. Jonathan was now dead. And I can't see that anyone in Scripture ever replaced Jonathan in David's life. So you got David isolated. His men are out at battle. They're out at war. David's the king. Where should David be? He ought to be out there with him. He ought to be out front. But what is he doing? He's back home in his jacuzzi, enjoying the weather, looking out. He's got idle time, and he's isolated. And then you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Now, let's use this scenario. What if, um, what if Jonathan had been alive? What do you think would have happened? Here's what I think would have happened. I think Jonathan would have gone up those stairs. He would have kicked that door in. He would have seen David in the jacuzzi. He said, get your butt out of there. What the heck are you doing? Get out there and go to work. Go out there and go to war with your guys. David said, you can't talk to me like that. I'm the king. Hey, don't give me that king crap. I knew you when you were nothing. You were a shepherd with all that cheap crap all over your sandals. Don't give me that king stuff. Get your tail out of there and go to work. Well, you can't get... Shut up. 
Don't you need somebody like that in your life? See, who you know loves you, and you know who's on your team, and who has your best interest. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right? David was not isolated, David was idle. It just amazes me how many commercials are on television that are about retirement. Retirement. Retirement's become an idol. I-D-O-L. You want the good life. You, well, what is that? And, and, you know, we don't ever really stop and think, but, you know, oh, my gosh, I looked at my portfolio and I can't retire. Well, okay, what does that mean? Well, it means uh, it, hey, there's nothing wrong with retirement because we get older and we don't have the energy and the verb that we used to have. But, but if you're talking about retirement, just that you just check out and you're not productive and you're not contributing and you're idle, may God keep you from it. Right? That's not what you need. You need to be productive. It doesn't, it, and I'm not saying as we get older, we don't, you know, change our lives a little bit because we're not 20 years old. We don't have the energy and we don't have the... I was drinking coffee in my chair and reading my Bible and I'd been there quite a while and I got up to go into the kitchen and as I got up, I was walking in. This is absolutely true. I was walking in the kitchen and I thought, you know, I remember when I didn't used to have to think about walking into the kitchen. I would just walk. But I'm thinking about it because, you see, I hurt right there. And I got this pain flashing across my kneecap. And I remember when I was 20, I didn't think about walking into the kitchen. But why am I walking like my grandpa right now? It's because I've turned into my grandpa. You get miles on the tires. You start breaking down. I'm not saying, and you understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that we don't, you know, adjust life and maybe not do what we did and not put in so many hours, but you just can't sit around and be idle. That doesn't make any sense, does it? You want to be productive. He's got a work for you to do. <coughs> Number six. He will attack. The enemy will attack. When will he attack? Number six. When the Christian is dying. D-Y-I-N-G. Oh, by the way, here's the problem with all this talk about retirement and all the commercials about retirement. And are you saving enough? And are you putting enough away? And are you going to be able to retire at this level? And are you going to have this condo on the golf course? Are you going to have all this? And you, get, you set it all up. Oh, can, can, can I mention something to you? If you never factor in dying into your retirement, you better get a new financial advisor because you're going to die. You are going to die. You can give as much money as you want to this research and this research for this research. You're going to die. Second hand, third hand, fourth hand smoke, you're going to die. Perfect health, perfect cholesterol. You're going to get hit by a car walking across a church parking lot. Something's going to happen. You're going to die. Nancy Guthrie and her husband are good friends. They used to be our neighbors in Coppell. They've been through a lot of suffering. And uh, Nancy, Nancy's a prolific author. She has written a surprising new book. It's an anthology called, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go, hyphen, Facing Death with Courageous Confidence in God. Now, how many people are going to read a book about facing death with confidence in God? I hope a lot of people read it. You know what she's done? It's an anthology. She has taken the writings of great theologians and great Bible teachers, and she's compiled them into a book that would enable us to face death with courageous confidence in God because we are all going to die.
Can I give you a couple of the titles? She has in here G.I. Packer's work. Only when you know how to die can you know how to live. And this is nothing to sneeze at. I'm sorry, man. That was bad, Larry. You just set me up. I've been waiting for three years to use that line, man. <laughs> It'll happen to me, too. You're going to die and you're going to sneeze. That's what's going to happen. You're ready. Joseph Bailey, who I mentioned to you, lost three sons. He wrote a work that's in her anthology. You know what the title is? Our Faith is in God, Not in Healing. Oh, sometimes God heals. Does he not? Sure he does. We've got guys in here who've been healed. Miraculously, God's done an amazing work. Praise God. Lazarus was healed. He was raised from the dead, and then he died. Right? But Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he, what? Live. Suddenly I want to sing up from the grave he arose. You know that song? Dad gummit, that's a good one. Okay. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he's contributed a, a work called My Father Taught Me How to Die. He watched his dad die. Franklin Graham made a statement a few years ago about his father, Billy. He said, my dad's always been ready to die, but he wasn't ready for old age. <clears throat> Took him by surprise. You know, I hope I go out. I want to just have a <clears throat> and go. Don't you? Just boom. My brother Mike, that's how he went. Boom, boom. He was good. He, was, he, he, he never knew what hit him. He was in the presence of Christ. That's how I want to go. Well, I probably go that way. I'm thinking I may not. I may not. Not everybody goes that way. It's amazing when you read the biography of great Christians, how many of them died deaths that were painful and agonizing and slow, and they were attacked by Satan. Is Jesus really there? Is heaven really true? He will attack you on your deathbed. Abraham Kuyper has written, Spiritual light shining from your deathbed. Tim Keller has written, Rubbing hope into the reality of death. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor, directions for a peaceful departure. Martin Luther, what more should God do to persuade you to accept death willingly? Thomas Boston, comforts against fears of the dying hour. Jonathan Edwards wrote, the day of the godly man's death. Charles Spurgeon wrote, those who die daily die easily. Now there's wisdom. Those who die daily, die easily. And see, when you die daily, you say, not my will, but thine be done. Because he's a good God, and he can be trusted. Will you be attacked? Yes, but only within the parameters that God allows. Will evil occur in your life? Yes, but only in the parameters that God allows. And as Joseph said to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but... God intended it for good to bring about this present result. Let's pray. It's not if we will be attacked, uh, our Father, it's when. And even more than what we have just gone over, there will be times when we will be attacked. But we do not fear 
because we know you. You tell us in your word to resist the devil and he will flee from you. We thank you that our lives are under your control and under your power and under your sovereignty. We thank you that you have a plan for our lives. We thank you that when the hard times come and we suffer, it's always for a purpose. It's never random. You have a purpose, and that season of suffering has a beginning, and it has a middle, and it has an end. And you have, you have planned that from before eternity. There are times when you give us great deliverances, and we honor you and glorify your name, and our families do, and our friends. And then there are other times, Lord, when we suffer, and it's on that final deathbed, and then we are taken into eternity to be with you. We entrust our entire lives to you. The battle has been won. Jesus has conquered. And our eternal home is sure because of the greatness of what Jesus has done. Encourage us with these words. Even as we withstand attacks, keep us close to the Savior, we pray in his great name. Amen.